you think God is pleased with a song like that? Singing of his virtue. It's a wonderful thing. Because we could be here for a long time if we went through all of the character traits that make God glorious in his godness. It's a wonderful thing for us to be able to sing about God being that place of refuge and that fortress that when life is unsettled that we can go to. Do you know that's not how everyone looks at God? Not everybody looks at him as a help in time of need. Some, of him look, some people look at him as a relic from a bygone era, an age of superstition when people didn't have science and they needed some kind of crutch to help them understand why bad things happen to good people. We like to have this high and lofty view of God. We realize that sometimes the images of God that are popular in our culture just simply aren't true. If you went to the mall and you asked people what they think Jesus looked like, you would inevitably get some version of a 1970s hippie with long hair and maybe a little sheep around his neck. I know that because my my grandma has that picture in every bathroom in her house. That's the picture of Jesus. What we don't think of Jesus as is the man who's got his mug shot on the milk carton and in the post office. Jerusalem's most wanted. A man who is vilified as a criminal and considered not worthy of any serious consideration. Last week, as we continued looking at Matthew's telling of who Jesus is, we see that that's exactly what has happened. Jesus has been this roving and itinerant preacher, teacher, and miracle worker, and people have been wowed by Jesus until last week. And you're familiar, if you've, if you've grown up in church at all, you've heard the story that there, there are four friends who have a man who is paralyzed, and Jesus is teaching at someone's house, and they climb up on the roof, and they, they break the roof apart, and they lower him down, and Jesus, seeing their faith, says, Son, take courage, your sins are forgiven. Not you're healed. This creates a controversy because the religious leaders now understand that Jesus is claiming to be God because God alone has the authority to forgive. And so there is a controversy in Jesus knowing, let me prove something to you, that I do have the authority to to forgive. And he says, son, get up and take your pallet home so that they may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. And while it's hard to believe, that is the beginning point for the continuing controversy that will dog Jesus until he is dead. That because he chose to forgive and heal a paralytic, this good deed has caused incredible animosity. And so now, the battle lines are drawn. You have the religious leaders on the one side, you have Jesus on the other. And Jesus has been the popular folk hero And the Pharisees come and they sucker punch him. And it looks like this hometown hero is staggering. What's he going to do now that everything's not peachy keen? Now that there is controversy, how's he going to respond? And in our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9, excuse me, through 13, 
we see that Jesus makes three things very clear about his mission. He's just walked away from this controversy over healing and forgiving this paralytic. What's he going to do now that the battle lines are drawn? And the very first thing that we see is that Jesus says that he came to save sinners, even those who are notorious and hated. Look at Matthew 9, excuse me, verse 9. God's word says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up, and he followed him. Over the last several weeks, we've talked about Jesus' authority. He taught with authority. He healed with authority. And you know what? Everybody really likes Jesus' authority until he does something with his authority that they don't like. And then they go, who is this man who thinks that he can forgive sins? They liked his authority until they saw that he used it to benefit people that they considered outcasts. Jesus doesn't ask for permission to call Matthew as a disciple. He doesn't take a poll and go, hey guys, I'm thinking about calling a tax collector. Let's huddle up. What do y'all think? He doesn't say, hey, what's this going to do to my PR? Am I going to be on JNN tomorrow? You know, Jesus calls tax collector. Inquiring minds want to know. No, he has the authority to call who he wants. And what does he do? He calls a tax collector. Jesus, you could choose anyone. Could you pick someone perhaps less controversial? We know him as Matthew, the man who later would write this gospel. And so as he details the story of his following Christ, he does it relatively briefly. In the course of one verse, he says, hey, Jesus was walking by. He saw me at work. He said, follow me, and I did. We would expect that kind of humility from Matthew. Matthew is one of three disciples. There's 12, but there are three who in the Gospels never say a word. They're completely silent. And so we kind of expect Matthew to be self-deprecating about himself. We know him as Matthew. The other Gospels record him as Levi. Good name, selection, by the way. Going to be a disciple. Uh, Some people believe that just like Simon, who became Peter, had two names, then maybe he had two names, a Jewish name and a Greek name. Maybe Jesus did like he did with Peter, and, uh, uh, with Simon, and gave him two names. But the reason this was so controversial was because of what Matthew did with his life. He was a tax collector. <clears throat> now, I know people who work for the IRS, none of them have best friends unless they happen to work for the IRS. You know, um, you want to joke on somebody, lawyers and IRS agents seem to be the popular people to pick on. But it was not just that he worked for the IRS. The taxes were collected by the Romans who were a foreign invading force. So from a nationalistic perspective, Matthew as a Jew, Matthew slash Levi, was considered a traitor to a foreign invader. He just saddled up with these interlopers that have come in. From an ethnic perspective, he was defiled because he had to work with Gentiles. You actually touch money that Gentiles have touched? You don't use the little foamy stuff? No antibacterial? Nationally, he's a traitor. Nationalistically, he's a traitor. Ethnically, he's defiled because of his contact with Gentiles. And ethically, he's considered dishonest. 
See, tax collectors could charge whatever surcharges they wanted to kind of, here's a little bit to Caesar, and here's a little bit to me. As a tax collector, someone who had the opportunity to line his own pockets, he was almost, without question, loaded. Loaded. He was rich. He, if this is the, the national standard for Israel, Matthew's up here. He's, he's the 1%. We don't tend to think of Jesus attracting rich people. We think they're all poor fishermen, and Jesus kind of just went around begging for food and places to stay. No, he had some people who were people of means. And here's the thing that I think is so interesting. When we look at Matthew's response, Jesus says, follow me. And it says, Matthew got up and he followed him. He obeys immediately, and he obeys humbly. You see, Matthew doesn't report that he's loaded, but Luke does. Luke's a little more objective. Matthew's talking about himself, and he's going to kind of stay out of the limelight. Luke says when Matthew, when Jesus called Matthew, it says he left all. All. That means he had something to leave. He didn't live in a one-hut room with a bed and a few possessions. He left all. As a matter of fact, we know that he was a man of some resource because what is the first thing that Matthew does when he decides to follow Jesus? Look at verse 10. <clears throat> While Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, whose house? Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came as guests to eat with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew decides to throw a party, and the, the party creates a conflict because there are religious people who are upset with Jesus because of who he hangs out with. Matthew, while he is quiet, is a good disciple because he has caught his master's spirit. The master's spirit is what we saw in our first point, that Jesus came to save sinners, even the most notorious and hated ones. And what does Matthew do? He throws a party to reach his friends. How do we know that's his friends? Because many tax collectors showed up. He put it out on the, uh, you know, office intranet. Hey guys, party at my place. Bring your own yarmulke, you know. We're going to have a blast, you know. Uh, bring your grape juice. Um, we're we're going to have fun. Matthew is making a transition in his life. And he knows that he is committing himself to following Jesus. And these people that he had worked with, that he had perhaps never shared with, because he had nothing to share. He says, this is my last chance to tell them I'm a different person because I'm following Jesus. And he throws a party. No expense, uh, not able to be covered. He takes care of it all. He says, guys, just show up. You know that Jesus you're hearing about? He's going to be there. Free party? Cool person? Absolutely. I'll be there. The problem is that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders are kind of upset with Matthew because they didn't get an invitation to come. You invited all these people, you didn't invite us until they saw the guest list. And then they're kind of glad to not be invited, but they're not real pleased with Jesus. Again, Jesus, you picked the wrong people. And so in verse 11, what do they do? It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher 
eat with tax collectors and sinners. And it's kind of insidious. They don't go to Jesus and ask the question, what do they do? They go to his disciples. Now, from what we can tell, Matthew may have been a disciple for like a day. Uh, I'm not prepared to answer these questions, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Pharisee. Um, They're not really asking a question because they want an answer. They're making an accusation. Why would your teacher do this? We are watching you. That master that you follow, man, he's weird. Well, Jesus, here's what's going on. And to put it in the original Greek, he's, he's ticked off. He's very upset. Verse 12 and 13. When he heard this, when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus issues a proverb. It's not the healthy, but the sick who need a physician. And what the Pharisees had been saying is that old statement that we all know. Birds of a feather flock together. Why does Jesus hang out with sinners and tax collectors? Because he's rotten just like they are. To which Jesus says, I'm not among them because I approve of their lifestyle. I'm not condoning their actions. I am among them as a physician is among sick people. You see a doctor, do you go, oh man, you're a disease-ridden person, we don't even want to be close to you. No, the doctor, to do his work, must be around the sick people. And so Jesus is saying, this is what I'm doing. And there's some bite to it. Because the Pharisees obviously considered themselves model citizens and healthy spiritually. And Jesus kind of implies, if you think you're healthy, and I have nothing for you. It's true in our own lives. You've had a good week. Things have been relatively easy for you. And you forget God. You think you're self-sufficient. And then trouble comes, and God doesn't seem to be anywhere close. Because we have to know our need. We have to sense our sickness for Jesus to be of benefit for us. We must realize our need for Jesus to be helpful. And so when Jesus says, I've come to call the sick, not the healthy, Jesus is not giving some kind of tacit implication that the Pharisees' spiritual condition is okay. He's not saying, oh, Pharisees, you guys are so healthy, you don't need me. He's saying, you're so sick, you don't even know that you're sick. And then for people who are supposed to be experts in Old Testament law, what's Jesus say? Go and learn what this Old Testament passage means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Hey, you supposed Old Testament scholars, I think you failed this class because you don't understand what this verse is about. He's saying the Old Testament as a whole is indicating that our faith is proved more by our daily compassion than it is by our impersonal religious ritual. You can go to church every time the doors are open and be a nasty cuss of a person. It shouldn't be that way, right? But there are some people that are so objective in their approach to Christianity that they assume that they have fulfilled 
all of their obligation by making their weekly pilgrimage to worship services. And it makes no translation into how they live the rest of the week. Jesus is saying, if you bring an exact tithe of spices, here's how much celery salt, here's how much cumin, here's some paprika for Jesus, and you're so fastidious, so caught up, so OCD about following the law that you don't pay attention to the people that God sovereignly arranges to be along your pathway. You deny simple kindnesses. You've distorted what God says the gospel is about. That there's a living reality in our life that is supposed to be manifested in every relationship, in every person that we meet. And so we see something here that provides a very clear contrast between Matthew's attitude and the attitude of the Pharisees. If the first point is that Jesus came to save sinners, the second is very closely in tune to that. It's that Jesus came so that saved sinners might save sinners and not just self-righteously scoff at them the way that the Pharisees did. In stating that he's going to sick sinners, Jesus asks the Pharisees a very pointed question. Pharisees, if you're as healthy as you think you are, and if those people are as sick as you think they are, why aren't you doing anything to help them? The question's unstated, but it's implied. As is the answer for the Pharisees. Um, We kind of like the social order the way that it is. We're on this side of the tracks, and there's a reason that they're on that side of the tracks. Keep them there. Don't bring them over here. We're the haves, they're the have-nots, and for us to not be the haves anymore means we've got to share with them. Social order is good for business. Let's keep things just the way they are. You see, for us, we have to understand that our mentality makes a big difference. It's really hard to shout at sinners about everything they're doing really wrong when you're trying to serve them. Because then you're serving them, if you're shouting at them, then the service opportunity dissipates, doesn't it? Because they're not going to stand there and let you yell at them about everything that you think they're doing wrong, whether your opinion is biblical or not. And Jesus is saying, listen, sinners, sinners know. They're just in denial. You love and serve and be compassionate and leave the judgment to me. Well, that's not the only controversy. You see, from this point on, when Jesus healed and forgave the paralytic, from this point on, this criticism will dog him till he's dead. We have had peaceful Jesus, and now we have controversial Jesus for the rest of the gospel. But the controversy wasn't just with the Pharisees who were really upset with Jesus going to Matthew's party. In verses 14 through 17, John the disciples, John, John the Baptist's disciples show up. And they've got some questions for Jesus too, because Jesus doesn't do things exactly the way John the Baptist did. Does that surprise you? Denny Wise and I don't relate to people the exact same way. You know why? I'm not Denny Wise. And thank God, why is it not Scott Davis? You know, your husbands and wives, do you deal with things differently? Do you sometimes wonder, I've been married to that woman for 20 years, and I still don't quite get why she did what she did. We're different people with different giftings and different personalities, and Jesus does things differently than John the Baptist. What do we know about John the Baptist? Um, 
Let's just say if he ever opened a restaurant, it would be a terrible fail. Honey and locusts? No, thank you. But if Jesus opened a restaurant, it's Thanksgiving. Because what's Jesus do? He feasts with sinners. What's John the Baptist do? He fasts. And so at the time all of this is coming on, Jesus is at a party, and all these people are showing up going, "Uh, the Pharisees, we see what you're doing. John the Baptist going, "Um, we're fasting right now, and Jesus is feasting. Jesus, why? Why? Because good Jewish boys fast. It's that time of the year. It's fast season, and you're not doing it. And so what's interesting is John the Baptist's disciples came to him. This is an honest question. This is not some kind of entanglement that the Pharisees were doing by going to the disciples. John, John the Baptist's posse kind of wants to know what's going on. And there's a mild rebuke. Jesus, you party too much. And you're smiling while you're hanging out with these tax collectors and sinners. You're being entirely too gracious. You're not telling them how they fall short and you're the... You, What's happening? And so Jesus replies with a parable. And you see this in verse 15. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And then he continues on with an object lesson. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts... Um, this is the Bible. It's not grape juice. Uh, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst. The wine spills out and the skins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh new wineskins. And both the wine and the wineskins are preserved. They come and they say, Jesus, why don't you fast? And he says, it's kind of like a wedding day. And a wedding day is not a funeral day. A wedding is a time of joy and celebration and anticipation and hopefulness. A funeral is a time of mourning. And Jesus says, you know what, right now, it's the wedding day. I am the long-promised one that God has faithfully brought. How can my disciples be gloomy and downcast in my presence? There's going to come a day when they'll be able to mourn and fast and do it all. But that day is not today. Don't be gloomy. Be glad because you're with Jesus. Fasting is a picture of sadness. And Jesus' presence is a picture of gladness. I don't think they quite get it. Because they've been steeped in John the Baptist's way of doing things. And Jesus just kind of blows their mind. So Jesus tries to explain the unorthodox nature of his style compared to John the Baptist, by using these object lessons. And he talks about sewing, and he talks about wineskins. Basically what he says, he says, uh, John's disciples, I am not here to patch up the old. Because patchwork on old doesn't work. If I put new on old, it's going to tear and it's going to be even worse. I'm here to bring in the new. I am the new. You remember last week we had the Lord's Supper. And he says, this cup is the sign of the 
new covenant poured out in my blood. God was doing something new. This was not just a software update for the Jewish religious system. There's a technical glitch, and we need our technicians to fix the bug. In this. No, Jesus is saying the newness of the gospel, while growing out of the Old Testament law, is bigger, newer, and better than that. And this is the plan that God has been leading up to all the time. And God's new work needs new containers with greater flexibility. Because you know what? If we put the gospel in the old container, how many people of Jewish descent do we have here this morning? Not me. You don't need to raise your hand. Read Hopkins, a witch, you know. <clears throat> None of us would be saved. God needed to explode the old container of ethnic prioritization to say, my message is not just for the Jews. It's for people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation and people. The Old Testament said there's holy stuff. You know, you need to, you need to wash in the holy bowl before you come in to be pure enough to worship. There's bre- holy bread that we keep and there's gold furniture and there's lampstands. And Jesus says there is no more holy stuff. As a matter of fact, when he dies... The curtain that separated the holiest place of all was torn in two to demonstrate there is no more holy place. Your home, this building, takes on significance to us, but it is no more holier than the train track across the street. Because what is the holy place now in the Christian faith? It's the heart of men that seek to allow him to sit as king upon the throne of their life. You want to talk about a holy place? It's God's people not a place. And so God is doing a new thing. And he says, if you force the old into the new, you end up destroying both. But if you put the new wine into new skins, you preserve both. The point here is not that Jesus is giving craft wine microbrewing tips. He's not trying to tell you, hey, vineyard owners, here's how to really make it big with your wine sales. It's that Jesus came so that his disciples might do a new thing and do it with joy. Why with joy? Because it's this very simple truth. People who wear the old garments and people who use the old wineskins will argue about the superiority of their ways. And just as Jesus is facing criticism... Jesus is telling his disciples to do his mission with joy, regardless of the cost. Some people are going to get their wine spilled. Some people are going to get their garments torn up. And he's giving his disciples permission to not conform. Because following Jesus is costly. And when you follow Jesus well... You may frequently be the subject of criticism. We have a vision team that's meeting, working with a consultation group to talk about our mission, our vision, and our strategy. And one of the things that we have talked about that is endemic, epidemic, to this area of our country is that if there is a buckle for the Bible Belt, South Carolina may be it. Maybe us. And here's what's so hard about 
trying to live for Jesus in South Carolina is everybody's a Christian, right? Isn't everybody a Christian? Yeah, I went to church, meaning stop talking to me. I've got this all figured out already. It's everywhere. <clears throat> there is, I like to say it's like a lacquer. There's this thin veneer of Christianity where people sprinkle a couple Bible verses on top. But when you see the root and that there's no fruit, you sit there and you go, that's not Christianity. God changes people. Even in our own context, we have 850 people on our roll that the FBI missing persons department would never be able to find. And those people think everything is good with Jesus because 30 years ago they got their name on our roll. You know, circle, circle, dot, dot, now I got my Jesus shot. And they've never walked in the door because they, they don't love Jesus because they don't love his bride. Jesus tells us, if we're going to follow him, we don't need to do the old thing. We need to do the new thing. To say that God has offered us the gospel that isn't just an accessory to our life. It changes everything. Your motivations, your attitude, your responses. And he says, don't, don't be prepared to do this with a long face. He says, Matthew left everything and did it with a smile. He was not counting what he was giving up. He was looking forward to what he was gaining. And in our proclamation of the gospel, so what are they going to do? Not talk to you anymore? Is that truly persecution? When we're calling people to a biblical standard of living, how can that be wrong? If someone's not a Christian, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to them? They're going to go to hell. How can you make things worse for them? So by having these conversations and saying, listen, man, having your name on the roll of a church doesn't make you a Christian. You need to be a part of it. You need to get in on what God is doing. Do that with joy. Don't be obnoxious. But you are trying to bless and encourage and bring joy and vitality to their life. So Jesus says he came to seek and to save people that we might not like. He said that when he saves people, his intention for them is to catch his spirit so that as they are saved, they seek to save others. He says, rest assured, you do this, you go against the flow of your culture and there will be criticism. Do it anyways and do it with a smile on your face. So the question for us this morning is we evaluate our lives. Do our lives reflect the joy and the intentional seeking of lost people that characterize the, li- the life of our Lord? Or do we rather communicate a sour outlook that is more judgmental than joyful? Would you pray with me, please? <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship today and to sing your praises and to hear your word. God, we know that the, the, the practice of proclamation is a strange thing because we can gather and listen for half an hour and not hear a thing. So God, I, I, I come and offer my perhaps even futile efforts to you, asking you uh, through your spirit to apply your word where it needs to fit in this congregation. I can't do that. You know people's hearts. But Lord, I ask that you provoke and you prod and you 
push us so that we desire to be conformed to you, that your passions are our passions, that our life replicates your life, not that we are able to do it, but through the gospel, by your effort, you change us and you make us new. God, we pray for that newness. We pray that those of us that have walked with you will walk with you with greater joy and intentionality from this day forward. For those of us who are on the outside looking in, wondering what a relationship with Jesus really looks like, I pray that today you would not let them leave without uh, speaking to uh, myself, one of our deacons, one of our other pastors, so that they may know that with Jesus there is no loss, there is only gain. Because you are wonderful, you are beautiful, you are saving, you are sustaining, and you provide for your people. And so God, with that joy, let us worship you. In Jesus' name we pray.